Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The War Room, which is our interview series as part of the Clone Star podcast. I am your host, Sean Ferrick, and joining me is extremely prolific author and two-time winner of the uh, Scribe Award, the wonderful Dayton Ward. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. How are you? I am very good. I am very good. Um, I have so many questions to ask, but one of them is a question that uh, I last heard being asked by George R. R. Martin to Stephen King, and it's how the hell do you write so much? Well, that's how I put food in my kids' faces and how I pay the mortgage. So I am very motivated to write as rapidly as I can. Um, I did not always do this full time. I used to be a software developer. So I left that world behind several years ago, and now I write full time. And writing full time is not the same as being a software developer full time. Certainly not when the pay is factored into the equation. So uh, it's much more of a freelance lifestyle, bouncing from job to job. Um, uh, things are a little more settled now because I have a couple of regular clients that I work for. But um, yeah, it's the motivation is the mortgage and the kids <laughs> and retirement and college and all the other stuff. That's those are my muse. That's the muse that I work under. Uh, in fairness, everybody asks pretty- me, "What's your muse? Yeah, how do you how do you get motivated?" I'm like, I get motivated because the mortgage payments do. You know. I, I love that as well. I, I know one of the uh, one of the hardest questions you can ever ask an author is, where do you get your ideas from? Well, I look at the bills and I come up with ideas pretty damn quickly. The ideas are, you know, they come from everywhere. But I mean, and I enjoy writing. I love writing. Um, but if, when I talk about motivation, it's like, yeah, writer's block is not really a thing. <laughs> writer's block is I just don't feel like writing a day. And I'm looking for any excuse to not write. So I will alphabetize my book collection or I will go through my DVDs or I will watch Deadliest Catch marathons or, you know, whatever. So you, you just have to kind of admit to yourself you don't feel like writing that day. But um, when it comes to writer's block, now nah, I'm, I'm usually able to push through with whatever I'm working on somehow. No, I love that as well, because there's kind of it, it's one of those things where it's a hard question to I mean, like, oh, how, how do I get ideas? They'll come to you. So, you know, it's 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 kind of as easy they and come, as difficult they, yeah. as that. They come from everywhere. I mean, they, you know, it's just uh, the headlines, current events. You can find a way to put a spin on it to make it a Star Trek story or a science fiction story or some other kind of story. There's always, all there's information coming at us constantly from all directions. So something will spark something. Something usually sparks an idea. I was I volunteered at a museum here in town and I was in, by myself in one of the galleries early a couple of weekends ago. And I looked at one of the pieces that it was fairly new to that exhibit. And I started thinking about how can I turn that into a story? You know, and next thing I know, I'm narrating ideas into my phone because I'm by myself and I can get away with that. So I'm giving myself notes, you know, in, in my phone to, re- to re- revisit later once I get done with whatever I was working on at the time. I yeah, they come from everywhere. Now that that that's that is that is brilliant. Now I'm going to go back. So I know your your kind of career writing with Star Trek begins in 1998 with the Strange New Worlds anthology. Um, uh, the uh, the a competition, I believe, wasn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. Short uh, was it a short yeah. story submission competition? But before that, um, like I that was hardly I suppose yep. the first time you put pen it to was, paper. Uh, sorry, there was a glitch there. Um. I get your question. Um, yeah, it was a it was a short story contest that was uh, sponsored by Simon and Schuster, who they currently and have for many years. They have the license to publish Star Trek fiction, 
novels and short stories and technical manuals and all that kind of stuff. Um, this was an idea of editor John Ordover. He decided he wanted to open up things to people who wouldn't normally ordinarily get a chance to write Star Trek fiction for pay, you know, an actual paying gig. So it was open to new writers, meaning you had fewer than three stories published in a professional market. And there's a, you know, there's a per word rate that qualifies as professional. Um, I had never published anything professionally. So I kind of submitted a story based. I was, I was writing fun stuff. I was writing fiction, fan fiction and Star Trek goofy stories for friends and stuff. I was just kind of doing it as a hobby. And a friend of mine asked me or convinced me to enter into that first contest. Um, lo and behold, they picked my story as one of the 18 that were in that first volume. Um, got a paid check, got a contract, got to do all those things that regular writers do. Um, I submitted stories for the second and third anthology in the succeeding years and sold stories to both of them, at which point I had rendered myself ineligible to enter that contest anymore because now I'm a professional writer. <laughs> and they offered me a novel contract to write a Star Trek book. And that was in what, 1999, I think, is when I was told I was getting picked for the third volume. So um, how would I like to write a Star Trek novel for him? And I'd never written anything longer than a short story professionally or at all in my life. So, of course, I said yes. <laughs> by the way, if you're listening to this and you're a new writer and you're like, what do you do? You always say yes. Work out the details later. If you're offered a job, take it, take it and figure out how to do it later. Um, so that was it. I've been doing it for ever since. I've been writing Star Trek novels for 20 something years now. And it shows that like, looking through your bibliography is like reading the infantry of a library. It's stupid how many Star Trek novels that I have written. It's um, and it wasn't that wasn't a goal. That wasn't a life mission or a dream or anything. I never thought I would write anything professionally. That's not what I set out to do. That's what real writers did. Um, <laughs> but it's been quite a ride. It's I mean you know it's opened doors to me that I would never have been able to go through. Um, it's uh, the the people I've met, the friends I've made, the colleagues I've worked with, uh, the opportunities I've been provided. It's been quite a ride. Uh, definitely not my anticipated career path. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, it's been, like I said, I, it, when I look back on, I'm like really 20 something years of doing this on a regular basis. It's pretty insane. It is because it's, you know, when, you know, writers who are starting out in the trade, they're like, oh, I'll just be delighted if I can sell one story and then maybe hopefully I'll sell another one. And, you know, after a while, if you're lucky, you look back and go, oh, great. I've had a couple of years in a row now where I've, I've had a bit of a career with this. Um, I, uh, I, I certainly know that feeling. Uh, I think I published a story in 2003 and then again in 2011. And I'm looking forward to publishing the next one. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I don't take it for granted at all. The reason that I've I'm here after all this time is obviously because at least enough people like what I do that they keep that my editors keep calling me back. Um, so it's not anything that I just assume is going to happen. It's not anything I, I, I expect to happen or demand to happen or feel bad if it doesn't happen. It's like I said, it's quite a ride. They're still letting me sit in the car or in the boat or whatever you <laughs> want to call it. And I'll keep doing it till they kick me out. <laughs> um, um, I know. So your earlier career, you mentioned, of course, that you've been a software developer. And then, of course, you would also be in the Marines for, was it 11 years? 
Yeah, I, I went into the military right out of high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I anticipated doing a four-year enlistment, taking my college benefit, and going to learn about computers. Um, but I ended up taking computer classes and becoming a computer person in the military. I was a, I started off in operations side, and then I moved over to the programming side. And uh, four years turned to eight years, and eight years turned into almost 12. And, and I was enjoying myself, having a good time. I got married halfway along the way. Um, I was talking to my wife about it. You know, I was at the point where I needed to reenlist again. I was coming up on a reenlistment. And at that point, if I had done it, it would have put me close enough where I thought I'd have to do it one more time after that so I can get to the full 20 years and get the retirement benefit, right? Okay. And that was like, this was 1996 where I was making, I was having this conversation with my wife. And I said, you know, if I do it one more time, then I'm probably, we're talking at looking at another eight years because I might as well just stay for the full 20 at that point. And she didn't want me to stay in. She didn't want to move around anymore. She was tired of moving around. And to be honest, I was kind of getting worn out of it. It's a hard, hard life. And it's a young person's game. Um, And my knees were starting to give me fits. (laughs) So I, uh, and the job market for IT people in that, at that point in time where I lived at, you know, was very good. So I decided to go ahead and hang it up and go into the civilian world as a developer. Okay. And then I ended up doing that for another uh, 18 years. I got, I got my, I, I left my corporate IT job in 2014. So. 2014. So this is what were 16 years since that first publication. Since the first publication is 97. So oh. that's, you know, good Lord, that's 20 something years. That's 24, 20, 23, 23, 24, something like that. Uh, so I sold, yeah, because it came out in 98, right? 97. I, I sold it in 97. It was published in 98. So yeah, we're, we're at 24 years. So yeah, I was, I was working full time while writing in the beginning. I used to work my IT job and then I would, I would write at night and the weekends and the holidays and take time off and all that other kind of stuff. So I was burning the candle at both ends for a lot of years. Uh, when it came time to ponder my future as a developer, you know, my wife was like, you should just try writing full time because you're happier when you do that anyway. And so with her blessing and support, I left the corporate world and struck out on my own. And that was eight years ago. Fantastic. I, and I say fantastic because I know to be a full time writer, you must have passion. So you clearly did. If you were able to balance the, t- the both your, your software career and your writing career for that long, clearly there's passion there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was I. It started off as sort of a creative exercise. I didn't really expect, I never really considered publication, not professional publication, but I did, I did sell, you know, sell, I did solicit or submit stories to fan publications Mm. where you didn't get paid anything. And that was fun. And there's definitely, you know, there's validation when any, whenever somebody likes your writing, no matter what it is. Um, But I, I had no designs on writing professionally um i didn't like i said i thought that's what real writers did um but i got convinced to enter that first contest and here we are um so it's been like i said it's been quite a journey uh not one that i even my mother was like really they're paying you to write that garbage Uh, because she was never (laughs) never science fiction person never really understood what i saw in it but always was in was indulgent you know like i she made sure i had the extra money to get that book or that toy or whatever that was star trek related so and then despite her not liking Star Trek, she was always my number one fan. So 
Oh no, I love it because I suppose yeah, it, it it certainly helps if there is support from close friends and family, um, and that's just I'm delighted that you had that as well. My wife's been very supportive and very tolerant. I couldn't have done it full time without her backing me. Uh, but my my favorite story about my mother and my writing is she was a reader. She was always a big reader. That's how I learned to love reading. And but she had her thing. She liked mysteries and uh romance novels and that kind of stuff right but in her room in her living room in her place she had a bookshelf like a three or four shelf bookcase and the bottom row was one of everything that i had published to that point so all the star trek stuff and the other science fiction stuff and whatever else that i had published she had a copy of everything on the shelf and she'd have friends over and she would tell me that they'd look at the shelf and then they'd kind of stare at that bottom shelf for a few extra seconds like and then they gonna they work up the courage to ask her you know do you really read those things star trek books and she's like no 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 i don't read those things at all my son writes those and she said as often as not the person sitting across from her would say your son is dayton ward and uh, then they'd be outed as a start as a closet trek fan they would be like i'm a huge trekkie i read all the books i had no idea and so then I get requests from my mother to send boxes of books down for all her friends that were closet Trekkies. So that was, yeah. So that was a fun memory. Oh, that is, that is lovely. I, I love that. Like you're, you're, you're helping to expose secret Trekkies long before there was Twitter, long before there was social media. And we could all kind of, kind of, right. we could talk while still kind of keeping Come somewhat of anonymous. Closet. We love you out here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. That was funny. So yeah, we get, I did it. And finally, she'd tell them, look, you need to go buy your own books so that my son can get the royalties from the sale. <laughs> that, that was going to be the next one. It's like, you know, did this box so, like, of books come with an invoice? Get... Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Like I said, she was the president of my Florida-based fan club. So, I, you know, I, I cut her slack. But everybody else, no. My sister and my mother. Well, that's okay. That's all right. I suppose, yeah. Everyone's allowed to have a couple of people who get through that way. So that's fine. Um, yeah. That first novel, what was so so what's your your introduction not only to writing Star Trek novels, but to writing novels in general? It was a Star Trek novel, like I said. Uh that was yeah. the that was what the editor asked if I wanted to do. Uh it was like yeah. what I want to write a Star Trek novel. And I'm like, okay, sure. And then I had to figure out how to write a novel. Um obviously I'd had a lot of experience reading novels, including Star Trek novels, because I was a huge Star Trek reader. I was reading all the novels from Pocket and then from the previous publishers when I was a kid growing up and in, into that early adulthood. Um, so I spent he gave me way more time than I get nowadays for a book because uh, it was my first one. He didn't even give me a like a publication date, like I wasn't even shooting for a day. He's like, when you turn the manuscript and I think it's OK, then we'll figure out when to sell it. Okay. And then um, so I spent much longer than I normally do now writing that novel. I think it was a better part of a year, uh, maybe closer to 14 months. Um, and then he took it and then they, they set it for publication like a year after that. So that was a pretty long wait. But by that point, I was starting to pick up writing jobs elsewhere, like other short stories or they, they had just started the Corps of Engineers novellas. So Kevin and I, my writing partner, Kevin Dillmore, and I were getting some of those gigs um, so it wasn't terminable, an interminable wait. And that's the thing about being a writer. It's like you're always working on the next thing while the other thing's being, you know, coaxed through the production cycle. So it's like you don't really have time to dwell on it until it 
for example, the book that I've got that's coming out early next year, I hadn't thought about it in a month, but there's an email in my inbox that I have to go through the pages and pick out the last errors before they send it to print. But I haven't thought about that thing in a month because I've been working on something else. So now I got to reset my brain, go back into that one, clear up all any questions they have or any typos that are still in there. And then, you know, then reset and go back to the project I'm working on. The life of a freelancer. Absolutely. And I can imagine as well when you're doing things like uh, any interviews or any associated like press to you know, push out the publication is, you know, there's obviously you have your stack of notes and everything, but there's just like, oh, hang on now, I was writing that six months ago. Uh, oh, yeah, no, I remember now. I remember now. <laughs> right. Th that happens. And then, you know, like asking about a book I wrote years and years ago, I was like, I got to think about that for a minute. Um, not to be, I'm not trying to like, be impressed with how many I've done. It's just like, just forget <laughs> It's like stuff gets pushed out the back of my head. Um, not the little things, not the big things, but just like little incidental I notes or jokes or backstory that I may have forgotten. So, uh, but no, that was, so that was my introduction to novel writing. And then I turned that in. And of course, Kevin and I were, were writing together at that point. So we started doing a few things. And so my next novel was an original science fiction book called the last world war. And again, my editor at Pocketbook, same same guy, John Ordover, um, he gave me a lot of time to develop that idea. In fact, we spent a lot of time developing some of the ideas together via email. You know, like, I want to try this. You want to avoid that. You know, this is what we're going to do. So I probably spent, I don't know, four or five months just shooting ideas back and forth before I even wrote an outline for the book. And then once I got the outline approved, then I started writing the manuscript. And that was much different than writing a Star Trek novel. I had a little bit more freedom to do what I wanted to do with characters and I could, you know, take things in directions that I couldn't do with a Star Trek book. And, uh, it, but it was somewhat familiar because I was using my military background to help me through with the characters and the, and the storyline. But so, yeah, I got a quick, you know, right one, two punch, you know, one novel after another early on. And then, um, it took a couple of years before, uh, another Star Trek novel came around for me and it was for me and Kevin we did a we teamed up to do a couple of books in a mini series that they were doing and then after that it seemed like we had been brought up from the minors to the starting lineup on a major league team you know so and that's kind of where i've been more or less ever since well that's fantastic i mean it's you know once once you kind of got in there and obviously proved yourself um all the assignments start coming and you know after that second uh, book that yourself and Kevin on. I'd like to ask about Ke uh, your relationship with Kevin now in a moment as well. But how frequent now? What, what's the sort of turnaround now? You get an assignment to your due date. Normally, when I get a, normally the editor who's acquiring for Star Trek novels, they're working on their calendar. They have a calendar and they, and they start plotting. In, in, in ideal times, they'll plot as far as twenty four months out. So. From today, you know, they'll know like a year a year from now, which book is coming out and two years from now, which book is coming out. And we normally go through a production cycle of 12 to 18 months for a book. So from the time I get a phone call or an email asking for a book until the time you get to read that book, the average is somewhere between a year to a year and a half. Uh, and that doesn't take into account things like pandemics, <laughs> supply uh -huh. chain issues. And I usually get. And of those 18 months or 12 to 18 months, I might get six from start to finish. So by the time I come up with an idea, write out an outline, it goes through all the approvals process. I might get, if I'm lucky, I'll get four months to write the manuscript. It's usually closer to three. Um, and then the whole approvals and editing and copy editing and everything goes, you know, the bulk of that time is spent 
with not me not writing it's either the pre-production or the editing and get, getting it ready for print so but but obviously mine's the most you know mine's one of the very important pieces of that of timeline so if i screw up or miss my date or I think I'm going to miss my day. That has an effect on the entire production cycle. So, like, can I, if I need a couple extra weeks, can I, can I, you know, give them back two more weeks on the editing side? Like, I'll edit it two weeks faster than I thought I was going to edit it. That kind of thing. There's always a little push and pull, but I've been doing it long enough that my editor, she knows all the different writers. She knows all their different quirks. She knows that when they ask for extensions, if they need them, about how much they're going to need. <laughs> and I really think, honestly. She pre-plans that all on her calendar. So when she gives me a date, she's already figured out that I'm prop that I might need two more weeks. <laughs> like she does, and she bakes that into the schedule without telling us. You know, so, and I mean, I try to hit the mark way more often than miss, but every once in a while, life gets in the way, and you know, something happens. Uh, and I usually, I'm I'm better at hitting deadlines than missing them. But every once in a while, you're like, you know, I could use an extra week. I could use an extra two weeks. Um, which I think she's already figured out. That if I do, and I never asked for more than that. So she's after all these years, she's like, okay, Dayton, if he ever, if he does need more time, he's going to ask for two weeks. So I've already baked that into the schedule. So for her, like if for me, the deadline is July 15th. She knows, you know, X number of days around is when she's going to deliver to the publisher, assuming I might miss that date. <laughs> she's really <laughs> good at it. But to me, it's seamless, you know. Uh, it's, it's been, like I said, it helps when you've been working with the same people for, you know, like I said, going on 20 years. I was going to say, it, there's clearly this good working relationship there, which is obviously crucial when even, well, I was going to say even 18 months, it is quite time sensitive. But yeah, that 18 months is, as you've said, much shorter than actually 18 months. It's, you know, four months yeah, if you're doing well. It's not 18 well. months for me. It's yeah. yeah, it's not 18 months for the writer. It's 18 months for the book. And that's, you know, from the time. And, and, and the clock really starts ticking once the contract is signed. Isn't it? And then because that's when, you know, they're clear to uh solicit it they're, they're going to start entering it in their catalog and it's going to start getting an ISBN number assigned and that's going to trip off solicitations to you know Amazon and Barnes and Noble and the people who buy books for those markets you know that kind of thing and then 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 we're committed at that point you know um it's very unusual for a book to have to shift its production date once the, all that is in motion, you know, because you're lining up with other books, there's books ahead of you in the production cycle, there's books behind you. And if you decide to derail, you know, you have this, you could have an impact on multiple projects that, that are going on. So it's, it's a, it's when you're doing it in that model, that traditional model, it's uh, it can be, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that have nothing to do with your book. Like they don't care. <laughs> they don't care that your kid's sick. They don't care that you're sick. They don't care that your car broke down. You know, they don't, it's like, doesn't matter. Um, or if you have to take a school field trip or, you know, whatever. Uh, it's just one of those things. Uh, but again, having done it long enough and having the familiarity with the editorial staff does help. Of course. Of course. It, it, it has to. Um, so you're, you said your writing partner is Kevin Dillmore. So how did that relationship come come to pass, really? Were you assigned to each other or did you know each other independent of this? No, it's a quirk of fate. Um, when I won the first Strange New Worlds contest, Kevin was writing. He's a he was a journalist at the time. He was working for a small paper here in the in the in the Kansas City metro area, and he was working for a, he was writing for Star Trek Communicator magazine, which at the time was the magazine for the Star Trek fan club. This is back in the nineties mid to late nineties. And he was given the assignment to interview all the strange new worlds winners that first year. 
And so he, you know, he, he dispatched emails to everybody. And I guess he sent out, you know, like a template with the questions he wanted to ask, but for people that were close enough, and I guess I was the only one, he decided to say, Hey, we're like 45 minutes apart. And, and I said, well, I also work closer to you than I live. I, you know, that's half the distance. So he offered to meet me at a restaurant or a bar. I think it was a bar. It was a bar and grill kind of place uh, and, and conduct the interview person to person in person. So we met and he asked me the questions and we just started chatting and realizing that we had a lot of the same interests. We were both big Star Trek fans. We we're both big comic book people and movie buffs and everything. So, you know, decided to hang out a couple of times and then the hanging out turned into a constant thing. And, you know, our wives were really excited because we each had a new playmate that we could take to the stuff like comic conventions and, you know, without having to bother them. Um, so yeah. And then, so we started writing the first thing we wrote together was actually an article for that magazine. Um, but why we started writing fiction together is again, a weird thing. Kevin was interviewing John Ordover, the editor. Uh, John wanted to break an exclusive announcement with the communicator magazine about the Starfleet Corps of Engineers ebook novellas, because it was a partnership with Simon and Schuster and Microsoft. They had just come up with their own version of a, of what would eventually become the known as, you know, we'd all have ebook readers. Now this is way pre Kindle. Um, this is the early late 1990s, early two thousands in that neighborhood. And Microsoft wanted exclusive content for this e-reader to, to entice people to buy their product. And he wanted some Star Trek stuff. So they created a line of Star Trek stories that they thought would appeal to the tech geeks that like new technology. Kevin was interviewing and they were talking about what kinds of stories would this new series entail. And Kevin pitched a couple. He said something to the effect of, so you mean like the SCE would be sent to find why the old Defiant from the original series disappeared into that interspatial rift in the Tholian web? You know, why, how to get it back? And John's like, that's exactly the kind of story that we want to do in this day. And I don't know why Kevin asked this question to this day. He said, well, hey, can I write that up as a pitch and send it in for consideration? <laughs> to as to be the to, he wanted to write that story for John and John said sure yeah go ahead knock yourself out and Kevin hung up the phone with John and called me and said I'm in trouble <laughs> I offered to pitch a story to John Orvdover and I don't know how to do that so we got together on a Saturday and this is a recurring theme with us beer and chicken wings and we broke a story and pitched it to them and that was the first of our SCE collaborations the Starfleet Corps of Engineers and you know, we ended up doing 10 of those, 10 or 12 of those, I think, over the course of however many years that series, I think it was five or six years. Um, but that was our minor league thing. I was, I, refer, I made the minor league reference before. It's like a lot of new writers were getting a chance to break into Star Trek writing through that series because they were putting out an ebook novella every month and they did it for 60 something installments. So a lot of people who had never written Star Trek before got a chance to write Star Trek through that. And that's what Kevin and I were doing. And that led to us writing, you know, the full length novels on a regular basis. Very weird path that we have taken. Like it is, it is strange in a cool way, but um, it just, it, it almost sounds like basically once the ball started rolling, it just hasn't stopped. Pretty much. I mean, it's like, you know, they say luck is where, you know, I don't, I, they say luck is where preparation and opportunity meet, but I can't really say I was preparing for this. Just sort of, just sort of blindly stumbled into one thing after another. Uh, but again, we still had to do the work, and we still had to, you know, convince our editor that we knew what we were doing. And then those books had to sell, 
Um, so I would like to think I'm doing at least something right because they keep calling me after all this time. Uh, so knock on wood. Like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll keep answering the phone whenever they call and they'll, I'll keep, I'll, I'll ride the ride until they kick me off. <laughs> um, you obviously, you, you were one of the, uh, the, well, you've written everything, but you wrote one of the coda books as well. So how has that now affected any, and I don't, whatever you can and can't discuss, that's no problem. But how has that affected, you know, what you're putting out? Because hasn't Coda basically just reset all of uh, the current uh, novel continuity? To a, to a, yeah, in a way it has. Um, we're no longer writing stories that were in that expanded continuity that that, that bled out for, or that led out from um, Star Trek Nemesis and uh, the television shows that were on you know, during the, during that period between the 87 and 2005, um, we were given when all the, when all those shows wrapped and the movies wrapped and, you know, Paramount or, you know, CBS back then, um, they were convinced that none of that was, that was over that, that period of Star Trek was over, you know? And so we were given a tremendous amount of latitude with what we could do. I mean, not completely a crazy, but definitely the, 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 the leash had been loosened a, a great deal. We were allowed to take the characters and, uh events in way different directions than we could have done if the shows and the movies had been in active production so we you know we we married off people we killed off people and then brought them back and then people got promoted and moved to other ships and we introduced new characters to take the places of characters that were no longer alive or you know like when Riker and Troy left on the Titan we backfilled their positions with new characters on the Enterprise and, you know, we did all this stuff that we could do and just really mixed and matched with the characters and did all kinds of crazy things because none of this stuff was ever going to come back on TV ever again, ever. We were never going to see Patrick Stewart again, right? <laughs> so until we did. And then um, so when we heard about the announcement that Picard was going to be a thing and Patrick Stewart was coming back and they were going to pick up the baton we kind of knew there were going to be a shift somewhere. There was going to be some kind of shift with respect to the novels. We just didn't know how, 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 how significant it was going to be. Uh, but once the, sh as the show was being developed and we got more and more information, we're like, yeah, we need to do something here. We should try to do something here. Um, and so we, ha we had meetings with our editors and we had a meeting with the people at CBS or, you know, now it's Paramount Global, but, we talked about it. I mean, you know, we don't want to do what Star Wars did where they just, you know, cut it off and said all that stuff doesn't count anymore. Mm. Um, that didn't set well with a lot of fans who of that material. Um, you know, uh, so we were like, we need to try to bring the curtain down on this in some way in some monumental, significant way that, you know, that hopefully pays, hopefully if we do it right, pays tribute to everything that came for the last 20 years. Um, whether we succeeded or not is up to the reader to decide, <laughs> but <laughs> uh we we definitely went into it with the intention of doing it right and it was it was a monumental undertaking it took the better part of better part of two and a half years to, from the first time i started thinking about it and you know dave mack was thinking about it independently and then we finally put our heads together that's probably when it really started for real but and jim swallow had some thoughts so but once we got the the green light to do something uh, um, then we really started moving fast yeah it was a better part of two years getting that thing off the ground, you know, and now it's out there. It's been what, it's been a year now. Mm. So, I mean, we're still here uh, as far as how that affects things going forward. You know, the books that are published now will have to take into account what the new shows have given us in terms of continuity. 
And, you know, they're they're leaning in in multiple directions. It's like, you know, we've got Discovery and Strange New Worlds who have filled in some blanks with the original series time frame or the pre-original series time frame. And you've got um, Lower Decks and Prodigy and even Picard to an extent that have given us some stories back, you know, some filled in some information about that period, the next generation era. And then now, now Discovery is way out in the front. So and they're but they're backfilling things that happened in that thousand years that they skipped over. So it's like we have to be conscious of all these things. And, you know, and there, and there are there are other Star Trek series that have been discussed or are, or, you know, they're, they're writing a pilot for this concept or they're discussing that concept. And we don't know what they're going to do. So it's a it's kind of like for, for people who write Star Trek books and Star Trek comics now that the shows are active again and, and adding to that canon, we just, you know, our, 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 our homework is a little different because there's always something new being added. And we have to be conscious of the fact that when we write something a year from now, a show could come along with a line of dialogue and override everything we did. So it's just, but I mean, that's the nature of the work we do. It's not new. And there's, you know, I've, I've had my share of it, so I'm not, I'm not bothered by that. It's it's part of the fun, actually, is just trying to meet the challenge of trying to write something that that might <laughs> might survive <laughs> a canon reset of some kind or a canon acknowledgement of some kind. I find it fun. I mean, I, I read comic books that have multiple versions of the same character released every week. You know, like you can you can walk into a comic book store and there's four or five different Batman comics that come out and none of them relate to each other. They're all different versions of that character. Um so I'm okay with it. I'm okay with the basic idea of there can be different versions of Star Trek that don't gel with each other. Like there's the comics continuity and there's the novel continuity and there's the TV shows and I'm fine with it. I understand that I'm not representative of all fans <laughs> and some people have very passionate ideas the other way. And I understand and respect that, but I, you know, and I try to keep that in mind when I'm writing, it's like, yeah, it's, it's an inclusive environment. There's room for all of us. Well, that's very true as well. I absolutely hear you when you say, obviously, yes, there, I suppose the fact that there is such strong, you know, fan opinions out there is one of the contributing factors to the enduring success of the franchise. Yeah, like if people didn't I, care, the shows wouldn't be exactly there. If, if they wouldn't, if they don't, if they didn't have that passion, they wouldn't care, then it wouldn't have lasted as long as it did. Now, I have a line out there that I'm like, I, once you get into tax toxic behavior and, you know, it's your way or the highway, I, I, I don't have a lot of room for that but hmm. i've i've been a fan since the original show since the early 1970s i go all the way back to reruns it after school in the 1970s so i i'd like to think i've got some cred street cred in this regard um i've watched it evolve over all those years and you know i, I you know i don't necessarily love every episode i don't love every film but as a whole and in, in the aggregate i love star trek in all its forms so I love, you know, I love the I love the wacky gold key comics from the 60s. I love the Marvel comics from the 70s and the 80s. Um, I, I even love the UK comic strips from the 60s and the 70s, which are they make the gold key comics look sane. And they're, they, but but they're cool. I mean, they're, they have their, they have a wacky charm that you can't dismiss. And I love that. I love the fact that they use that. They did that kind of stuff. That was the way you did those things back then. It could never fly today. But back then when it was more freewheeling it's like you really got some fun stuff back then i love all that stuff i want every comic to sell a million copies i want every book to be a bestseller you know i, I i'm a big cheerleader for all of that stuff but it's just you know the more content to consume 
the more opportunity there is for people to enjoy something different that maybe they wouldn't have experienced before. Um, we're seeing yeah. a huge resurgence in with the with thanks to things like streaming services of things mm -hmm. like the animated series from the seventies. Um, yep. That it's not that it was all but forgotten, but it definitely flew under the radar for a long time. Now it's back there's again. People who had you know there's people who had never seen Deep Space Nine or Voyager until Netflix streamed them. Yep, and so it picked up an entire new generation of fans from from Netflix and from streaming. And people watch Lower Decks, and they see the nods and the winks and the gags associated with the old animated series from the seventies. And so they go check it out. And yes, the animated series from the seventies is a product of its era, and it's a little clunky by modern standards. But I still dig it because it was again. I watched that on Saturdays when it was first run. So for me, that's as much Star Trek as any of them. And so these, when we get to the 80s and the 90s where they talk about, is the animated series canon? I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, they wore those stupid belts instead of spacesuits. And yes, they went, you know, they did all these things. Um, I always imagined that those adventures took place when I was writing stories. And when I was starting out Star Trek novel writing, I, I, I threw in animated references on the sly, you, you know, just because I was a fan. But now to see it come mainstream because Lower Decks has leaned into it so hard, it, you know, I just I'm, I I can't wait. I'm, I, I'm waiting for the animated series slash Lower Decks crossover. It has to happen at some point. Oh, it has. I'd, I'd love to whether they do um, whether it's the comic art style, or an episode. Love, or yeah, but I would love it. I love it. I, I, although I love as well. Uh, although I say I love this. I, there's a very dark joke in uh, in Lower Decks, the second season. And it's that museum. And, I know what uh, you know, I know where you're going. And I was just like, oh my the Spock, God, the Spock. That's absolutely the, the Spock. Sp yeah. <laughs> oh man, I when I when I first read the script for that, I was I I laughed out loud. I thought, oh my God, that's gonna be a great sight gag when they do that. Um and so and it paid off. It was everything I hoped it would be. I mean, I just I love the humor in Lower Decks. It's not mean or spiteful. It's mm -hmm. like, it's just, a, it's, it's, as I tried to explain to somebody on a panel at a convention, I'm like, to me, Lower Decks, that they poke fun at Star Trek and they tell, they don't poke fun at it. They, they have fun with Star Trek and its tropes. And they, they tell the same kinds of jokes that we would tell each other if we were sitting in the bar at the hotel during a convention. You know, they would, we would, we, you know, we'd make up jokes and we'd do riffs on crazy things and, to me, that's exactly what Lower Decks is. It's, it's just, they're just getting, they got smart. They were smart enough to figure out how to get paid to do that, where we don't. <laughs> that is that is the absolute win, isn't it? It's like, we get to talk right. Trek all day, we get to make fun of the Trek that's come before, and we get to cash these lovely checks. And we could do and it you know, kind of from home. Really? I mean, Mike McMahon, before he developed Lower Decks, you know, he wrote a Star Trek thing on his twitter he has on his own twitter account he did a thing on, on on his twitter account where he called it season eight of next generation and he basically riffed out ideas for episodes that never happened but he did it in his way with his humor and so you know simon and schuster collected a lot of that stuff and re, and they rejiggered it a little bit and they put it out as a book and so he's got this book with this imaginary eighth season of next generation that never happened and of course it's insane and absurd and it's funny but you can see the bones of lower decks in that mm -hmm. book. And so, but you have to know Star Trek to be able to effectively write Star Trek humor and comedy. You can't come at it halfway. You got to be able to lean in hard to the lore and the in jokes and the legacy of it. And I, I have no problem saying, I think everybody in that writer's room absolutely 
meets that standard. They are all huge fans. And you can see it come through in the scripts when they talk about this, that, or the other. And it's just casual mentions of this, that. I mean, some obscure, obscure thing from some episode that we've all forgotten. And you're like, oh, my God, he's right. Or she's right. You know, it's funny. So, yeah, they are. I, I, I would argue they are probably if there was some sort of like Olympics or something, you know, like, you know, battle of the network stars kind of thing where they all competed on a field and played dodgeball or whatever they did, all the different shows, writer rooms. I think the lower decks guys would have them. <laughs> Maybe the prodigy guys. So, you know, I don't know. It's pretty fun. Um, so, like, on, on that of, like, these guys clearly have uh, encyclopedic knowledge of Trek. We are, of course, living in a time where everything, thankfully, is merely a Google away. How much fun slash stressful was it in, you know, the kind of the early days? The internet hadn't really got as widespread as it was now to keep track of things. You know, was it I have to go back and watch X amount of episodes to make sure I'm getting this right? Or did you have enough kind of leeway that you didn't sort of have to do the heavy? Okay, hang on. Which episode was this? Which season was this? You know, it depends on the series. Um, if it's original series and to a lesser extent, next gener- somewhat lesser extent, next generation, I was pretty solid. Um, I've always been pretty solid, but oddly enough, during the same period, I used to be uh, a host on America Online. You know, I was one of those staff people that they had in, oh, yeah. in different berries on America. And so we had a Star Trek club on America Online. And so I was part of a team for the Star Trek club. We all did live trivia games on Fridays and Saturdays in on AOL. And so I was writing trivia questions, you know, by the by the dozens every week. Um, so I was going through the episodes and mining everything for the littlest thing that I could turn a trivia question. Um, and, you know, so I'm going back to the episodes. I'm going through the encyclopedia. I'm going through different reference books. Um, so by the time I was writing Star Trek for Pocket, ne- original series and next gen, I, w- I was pretty strong on. And then it's sort of a sliding scale after that, you know, like which which shows am I most knowledgeable in? Um, but like you said, nowadays, knowledge isn't really necessarily a, a make or breaker because everything is a Google search away. Um, however, you know, you have to kind of you can't just settle on the the facts of the matter. You got to dig in a little bit. How does it connect to the rest of the lore? And how does it you know, how does it spawn another story or how did the story from that other show connect to this one? So that's where longevity pays off. It's like I've been doing this long enough now. I know that if we're going to talk about, you know, it, it happened today. I was reviewing a script for a comic book. And I'm reading the, the reference and I'm like, wait a minute, we can reference blah, blah, blah from this episode. <laughs> you know, and it, it's just and it just comes to you. It's a lot of it is the spark is like, wait a minute. I think I remember something in an episode that's like this. And then I got to go find it because I don't always have complete automatic recall. I'm getting old now and things are starting to the import, unimportant stuff starting to spill out. I'd like to think the Star Trek stuff is still important enough that it commands space in my head. But some of the smaller things get a leak out. And, you know, plus the shows that have been around the longest, I've had the longest amount of time to absorb all that info. But the newer show is not quite so much. Like I couldn't, I can't, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of lower decks yet, but I will in 20 years. <laughs> you know, if I'm still doing this in 20 years, I should probably, I'll be okay. Um, also, I mean, like it's, th- things are looking good for the fact that, you know, if, uh, Paramount Global was to look through their Rolodex of like, we need a writer. Okay. Dayton and who? Yeah. At this stage, yeah. because, yeah. Uh, you know, there's plenty of people in line. There's plenty of there's there are a lot of knowledgeable folks writing Star Trek on different whether they write for the shows or whether they write for the games or the comics or the books. 
or other types of books that are not novels like tech manuals and, and episode guides. There are there are a number of people out there that are knowledgeable. And there are other people out there that are knowledgeable that we haven't yet identified. We know they're out there. They're fans, you know, and they, they just haven't managed to, to, to demonstrate that to the right person yet. <laughs> but there's always a chance because I, I think Star Trek might be around for, for a while in active production. I think we're at a point where it's not going anywhere for the short term. Well, that's actually, I mean, you're right. It's one of, again, the many wonderful things about how successful it is at the moment. Um, and, you know, with shows like Discovery set so far in the future, there's a lot of leeway. But also you can kind of say, well, we have to keep making Star Trek because we have to get to the 32nd century. So, uh, sorry. Well, that's, we you know, you'd like series. to think. I mean, can yeah. you imagine them filling in all that gap? I mean, I, 20 years, 30 years ago, I never thought that we'd be talking about the, you know, 8th, ninth, and 10th Star Trek television series. You know, um, when Next Generation came along, I was like, okay, this will last for a couple of years. And then I don't know what will happen. I mean, nobody, nobody, nobody can tell you that they saw this coming. No. There's nobody alive who can cop to that. Nobody, nobody knew. Um, but you look back on it and like Star Trek is a, is a huge body of work. Um, I mean, it's kind of like being a Star Wars fan. They, they don't have quite as much in terms of what was on the screen, but their fans you know, they, they've got a lot of ancillary material, books and comics and games, and and their fan base is just as passionate about it. So, you know, we're going to be talking about Star Wars in another 25 years. We're going to be talking about Star Trek in another 25 years. Definitely. Definitely. There's one thing I want to pick up on. Um, you, uh, you, you mentioned antics that you've been allowed to get away with. Would you be able to expand <laughs> on that by any chance? Well, I mean, I'm... I'm a, I have a presence on social media. So, you know, I have, I have a Facebook page and I have a Twitter handle and I have, uh, to a lesser extent, Instagram and a couple of other places, but I do most of my, my shenanigans on Facebook and Twitter. I mean, I make a lot of Star Trek jokes. I, I make memes or I craft a word joke or I'd make a comment about something, you know, and people have asked me, aren't you worried that the people at Paramount are going to be upset with you? And like, yeah, there's times when I might think I may have crossed that line, but so far, so good. Um, they've, I have pitched a couple of very, you know, unorthodox ideas for product. Like I can't, I pitched the idea of doing a book based on Captain Kirk's fight moves. And I didn't think that would go. I'm like, really? You're going to let me do that? Outstanding. And, you know, and so when people <laughs> found out that I was doing it, they're like, only Dayton could pitch that idea and make it work. Um when we were asked to write a comic book for the 50th anniversary or comic book story for the 50th anniversary, Kevin and I pitched uh, a riff on the old gold key comics from the sixties, you know, complete with the flames coming out the back of the enterprise and Spock's oversized ears and the landing parties have backpacks that are pink. Um, you know, we, we lean into all the tropes from those things and our editor was all over it. And so when people found out we were doing that, they're like, yes, only those two clowns could do something like that. Um, they're, they're very, like I said, they're very tolerant of me playing around on social media. I know where the line is. I don't step over the line, but I mean, I don't get into mean or insulting things, but I like to, I like to have fun. I like to tell jokes, I like to make people laugh. And Star Trek is a gold mine for humor, for finding Star Trek related memes and jokes. Uh, it really is like some, some of the memes that have come out over the last couple of years have just been hilarious. There'd be scenes from old, you know, the mm -hmm. TOS episodes, TNG, all of them, all the way through. And it's just either repurposed in such a way that it becomes the funniest bloody thing ever. The uh, Darmok has been used for so oh many. Oh my god! Memes. Yeah. Uh, 
I love that one. When they turn that into like um, the reaction, you know, like the Captain America understands that reference or Leonardo DiCaprio is pointing at the TV or, you know, whatever. And they turn that into Darmok memes. I'm like, okay, that's funny. That's, that, that's brilliant. I wish I'd come up with that. Um, I did a, you know, we've been watching Twitter go nuts for the last couple of weeks. Right. So mm-hmm. when they did the whole thing with the verification and then everybody started making up fake names of real people and all the other guys, I made a Star Trek meme where I had Kirk and his robot double from the episode, you know, what are little girls made of? Oh. And all I did was caption it with, so I've got, you know, the robot Kirk looking at the real Kirk and they've got different screen names, but they're both verified. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm like, so how's that, how's that Twitter verification thing going was my caption for the meme. And I thought it would get a couple of chuckles and be gone. And, you know, like three days later, it's still being shared and retweeted and people are liking it. I'm like, okay, here we go. And I kind of expected a, Wish you hadn't done that from Paramount, but nope. Again, Paramount is very, very, very tolerant of my goofing around. <laughs> That's good. They they obviously they obviously recognize the power of uh, social engagement, and as long as you keep getting engagement, boom, that's grand. Just well, all the that book It's either that or I'm not nearly as funny or clever as I think I am, and they know that I'm not really doing any lasting harm. I mean, <laughs> I don't know which it is, but I'll work with it. You know. It's potato, 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 yeah. potato, yeah, whatever, yeah. Both, both of which are verified. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, what was I going to say? You mentioned obviously the Kirk Fu manual. I mean, I ha- I have to mention the Kirk. Amazing. Thank you. I had a lot of fun with that. I pitched it. I was working with that editor and that publisher on the Vulcan Travel Guide, which was their idea. They came to me with that, or, or I'm sorry, they had the idea for the book. I think Paramount suggested that I could be the writer for that. Um, And so that's how I came to work for Inside Editions. And so I had a really fun time writing that book. It was different than what I'd done before, but it was a lot of fun, a lot of research involved. Um, So I got to the, I was getting to the end of working on that book. And I kind of half jokingly pitched this idea to my editor about the Kirk Fu thing. I had a couple of notes about it and some screen caps of different fight moves and I think I said, I can break this down like an actual hand to hand combat manual, like the military issues you, you know, with the steps and the diagrams and everything. I said, I think I can make this work. And I was thinking that they'd laugh a minute and then pass. And then, you know, an hour later, my editor's like, this is a gold mine opportunity. I want to do this. It took a while for him to convince other people that this was going to be a good idea. Um, but once I got the green light, I it, I didn't take me any time at all to write that manuscript. Um And then the fun part was watching the art because what I wanted to do was I wanted to tell the text part of it, the part that I wrote, I wanted it to be completely straight. Like it's a two man comedy act. I'm the straight man. The art is the guy who's making all the jokes and I'm the, I'm the guy that's helping set up the joke. Right. So I wrote the text to be completely serious and stayed in character. And then the artist was just going completely nuts with diagrams and the color art and everything. And I think the, the reason that book works is because of the art, which is what I had in mind. I'm like, you got to get me the right artist. I got to get somebody that really digs this stuff and can have some fun with it. And we can obviously, you know, if you look at it at a glance, it's obviously not a serious thing. Like it's not a tech manual. It's not a blueprint. It's not anything like a real serious Trek head would like. It's that kind of book that your grandmother buys you because you're the Star Trek fan and she's shopping for your birthday. <laughs> That's what I wanted. I wanted casual people to laugh at it and pick it up and buy it. Um, and I guess it worked okay, uh, because I've since gone on to work on several other projects with Inside Editions. It's, it's been a lot of fun. 
um, I was going to say that kind of what are the, what are the other uh, novels like that that you either have brought out or would love to bring out? Oh, if I was going to do another one of those mm. in that vein, you mean that kind of humor book? Um, I've had a couple ideas, but um, I don't want to spoil anything too much, but I've definitely had some ideas about another Star Trek humor book or two. Um, I just got to beat Rob Perlman to it because he's always the guy that's beaten me to the punch with these pop culture and humor books that are Star Trek based. <laughs> like, dude, why are you th- why are you taking all the ideas out of my head before I even have them? <laughs> so, no, that's that's just how writing work. You absorb. That's how Rob. You no, know, Rob. Rob is a, is an amazing human, and he is very funny, and he's very gifted at writing that kind of stuff. And um, as I, he had a book that came out last year, which was an adaptation of one of the short Trek episodes, you know, the girl who made the stars, the one about Michael Burnham as a kid. And they turned that into a kid's storybook. And when I first heard that that was happening, I'm just like, you know, I don't tend to get jealous of other writers and other and opportunities that are given to other writers or that they had the idea before I did. But that's like one of the four or five that I'm just like, Oh, what a brilliant idea. I would have loved to do something like that. Roman, you know, uh, but no, he's a good guy. And I, and I, and I, uh, we joke about that kind of thing all the time. I'm like, why do you do that? Dude, you take the head, you take the idea right out of my head. I didn't even know I had it until it's too late. So nah, it's fun, but I mean, that's, it's a good natured ribbing. And mm-hmm. that's if, if one of the big pluses of, of doing writing in general and writing Star Trek in particular is all the relationships and the friendships that I have made. It is just, a gas to work with these people. I absolutely, I love that because it's it's like just another aspect of the big Star Trek community that we're all a part of. You know, there is I the fan like community. To, yeah. There's yeah. Um, I would like to think so, and we're all fans too. I mean, I don't know. I can't tell you. I can't name a single person who writes anything Star Trek related these days who is not a fan. First, um, that's one of the reasons why we do it because you know doesn't really pay that much um <laughs> writing in general doesn't pay that much unless you're stephen king or something um but they bring that passion of that fandom you know, they, they they they're like oh, we've all watched it we've all we all came in somewhere and we became a fan and we want to contribute to it and we want to add to it and we want to ex- expand that experience for other fans um so it's it's a lot of fun to get together with other writers at conventions that you know i may only see them once or twice a year and you know, we beat out ideas and we come up with things and we're like, let's work together on this or let's pitch this together or let's grab so-and-so and go on as a group or, you know, whatever. And, you know, we we sit in the bar at Shore Leave. It's one of my favorite things to do on a Friday and a Saturday night. And, you know, our cluster takes over a whole corner of the bar. And it's not just writers. It's also fans that we know from social media and other conventions that we just like, we don't care. Come sit. We're going to just BS and talk and make jokes and poke fun at each other and eat too many chicken wings and other bad food and drink too much beer and whatever. But it's like, so I love, I, I love the aspect of Star Trek fandom. I, I love that aspect of fandom. It's something that um, I suppose, interestingly enough, the pandemic actually helped me discover as much was because of this huge online community yep. that's out there. Um, now, since the world has sort of opened up again, I've been lucky enough to go to a couple of the conventions and see some of just this absolute passion mm-hmm. that runs around. Um, and I, I, I just look around, people are like, huh, I guess I'm not that weird, at least not in this group. No, Maybe I, I found my people. 
one of the things I love about conventions is seeing all the different fans and, and what they're, uh, what they are fanish about, whether they like to build the models or they like to collect action figures or they like to cosplay or, you know, whatever. Um, I love all of that. I love, I love the cosplayers in particular because of the, just the staggering effort that goes into some of these costumes. I mean, they work on these things for months hmm. so they can show it for one day at a convention, you know, and then they might put it on again at some other convention, but they they're working for four or five, six months to just be able to walk around a convention on a Saturday with it for a few hours. You know, and it's just, just the amount of dedication and effort and talent. Good Lord. Some of these costumes are amazing. Um, that was one of my favorite things to do at a convention every year that Kevin and I would go to is we got tapped one year to be costume judges at their costume contest. Um, and it was sort of an emergency backfill situation, like the people they were going to get, which were other stars, you know, other guests attending the convention that are like higher up on the food chain than we were, um, had to back out. And so they were scrambling like an hour, half an hour before the thing started. Like, Kevin and Dayton, do you you guys have a problem doing this? And we're like, nah, well, you know, we're happy to help. We'll do that. Turn into one of our favorite things to do. So we would do it every year after that for the next 10 or 11 years. <clears throat> and um just seeing the amount of effort and, and talent on display in cosplay is just one aspect of fandom is amazing. And then you got model makers and artists and, you know, you name it. And somebody's doing something with it, Star Trek wise. And those that's my favorite part of conventions. Uh, you know, I've been to conventions where you try to sell your books and maybe you're not doing as well as you would at some other show because a lot of the people aren't there to buy your books. They're there to put on their costumes and hang out with their friends who are also in costume and go do things with the costumes or take photos or make little movies or go enter the contests or whatever. And I'm like, you know, it's an experience. A convention is a, is a wide experience with a broad spectrum of interest. You just have to be a part of it. You can be a part of it or you can stand apart from it. Make your choice. I choose to be a part of it. Absolutely. That's actually and enjoy it. Sorry. I love that phrase. That's a brilliant phrase. Like, um, just I, I i was at the um thorn in las vegas just gone and mm -hmm. just throw yourself in throw yourself yeah. you will somebody will put their hand out for you you know yeah. if you're feeling a bit lost like you said it's it's your people it's your tribe i mean it's uh, they, they are all a lot of people are there with the same worry for lack of a better term or they're you know they're like am i gonna fit in yeah you're gonna fit in we all fit in <laughs> right we all fit in somewhere um yeah, I just that's one of my favorite things about conventions. I love it. Um, as it, what can you tell us about what's coming next? Well, let's see. What's the next? Well, I mean, we're we're wrapping up. They're wrapping up the first season of Prodigy, right? Talking mm -hmm. about on screen. So they're wrapping up the season of Prodigy. We got a couple of what, we got how many episodes left? We just started, so three. We got another seven episodes of Prodigy left um, for this first season, and then. A little bit after that, into the new year, that's when we get the third season of Picard, the third and mm -hmm. final season of Picard. And there's been a lot shown uh, about what that season will include. Like everybody knows that most of the Next Generation cast is coming back, and but they don't know everything. They mm -hmm. haven't been all. They haven't all the surprises have not been spoiled. Um, and I'm not going to give you any clues whatsoever. Um, but there are some things that have somehow managed to be remain secret <laughs> for, despite the best efforts and and sometimes the inadvertent you know slips of the tongue from people um there are some interesting surprises for star trek uh picard strange new worlds will be back 
that's going to be a fun season. I I love the new Strange New Worlds. Um, they've got, they got some they got some things up their sleeve. I'm, I'm honestly surprised that they uh, spoiled the idea of the lower decks crossover. I thought that was something they'd keep under their hat for a little while, but I guess I was wrong because the the, the response to that from fans is just off the charts. They they can't wait to see how that's going to go, and I I wager that. Not everybody's going to guess how that's going to go. There are some there are some interesting shifts and turns in that one. Um, but as far as I, I, there's nothing, nothing. Other than, there hasn't been anything new announced since the Picard's date. Right. Hmm. So, yeah, if, if, if it hasn't been announced publicly, I can't talk about it. Uh, but I do know that they, you know, they got stuff in the wings. They're, they're, they're thinking about what's next for Discovery and Prodigy. Um, a couple other things that are on the drawing table that we haven't seen yet. But uh, it's Star Trek is on all cylinders right now at Secret Hideout. They are they're just going full bore. It and is. you know, comics are healthy. I mean, there's 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 some great stuff coming from IDW next year to honor you know like Deep Space Nine turns thirty next year. Um, so you're gonna have stuff like that. There's a new game. There's a new video game coming. In fact, they just released the first issue of a prequel comic today uh, here in the States. So, you know, there's, it's just happening everywhere. You know, there's a game here, there's a comic there, there's new books there. I mean, good Lord. Um, Star Trek is everywhere. <laughs> just turn it's, around and look. And it, it's true. Like, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm lucky enough that I get to make content around Star Trek. I'm delighted if I, if it was, you know, anything else, I'd be struggling. But with Star yeah. Trek, it's like just trying to keep up. It's hard. And there are days when I, when, in fact, when, when we're done here, I have to go back and, do some reading because one of the things I do is review scripts for comics and books and games and other things. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot of cool things that are, that are being developed. There's a lot of cool things that are being talked about and you know, it's like, yeah, there's just, it's all Star Trek all the time. And I'm, you know, if, if you had asked me 20 years ago that this is the job I would have, <laughs> I'd be like, nah, that's not, that's not a real thing. They don't they don't pay people to understand they don't pay people to like help Star Trek stories along. Sure enough, you know. So uh it's uh it's a weird job. I have a hard time explaining what I do to grown adults. So yeah. Yeah, ah, sure. Well, there's the you know, there's a great quote from uh it's actually from Doctor Who, but it's uh what's the point of being a grown-up if you can't be childish sometimes? There you go. Well, I mean, people ask me, you need to act your age. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I've never been this old before. So what am I going to do? No, I, I, and I, you know, and in fact, speaking of Doctor Who, I still have to watch the, the power of the Doctor. I have it on my on my thing to watch. Uh, I was just finishing a book, writing a manuscript, and so I haven't watched any TV for weeks, and I turned that in yesterday. So now I've got a backlog of stuff to watch, and the the, the last Doctor Who episode is part of that backlog. I, I, I've been I a fan say, for years. Think it's I, I enjoyed it. Oh, I I think I've. I think I've hit some of the spoilers, but I mean, I, I don't know where you started with Doctor Who, but I was, when I was a kid, they would run Tom Baker episodes on the local uh, PBS affiliate, the you know, the public television. So I came on board probably about the time Peter Davison took over as the doctor. I became aware of it. And mm -hmm. then, then I did I, it took me a bit to figure out that, okay, that guy's the doctor too. And then I dug in and I figured out the whole mythology of it. And that part is what fascinates me more than anything is just the whole idea of this guy that can change his appearance every so often. He's been around for a thousand years or whatever. Um, and then when I, I kind of let it wane until the Eccleston series started and then I jumped back on the train, you know, and, and I jump on and I jump off, but every once in a while, something piques my interest. Like when the war doctor thing was mm -hmm. developed and, 
And I'm like, okay, that that's really cool. And so I dug in. In fact, the, the war doctor was a, was an inspiration for what we did with Wesley Crusher in the Coda books. He was absolutely an inspiration. I don't even, I'm not even coy about it. I'm like, that is, that concept is very interesting to me. And I want to dig into that backstory. I want to read everything about the war doctor I can find, you know, which thank God for John Hurt, you know? Um, So that was, by the time we were doing Coda, I had in my head, I had an idea of Wesley Crusher, Time Lord, you know, (laughs) when we started developing it. And then the shows decided they were going to do something similar. I mean, what else are you going to do? He was a traveler in the shows 20 years ago. So the idea is there if you just connect enough dots, you know, so I, I, I claim no authorship of that idea. Uh, I was just like, to me, he's Dr. Who, if you do it right, you know, and uh, lo and behold, that's what we're doing. I'm like, okay, Wesley Crusher time Lord. I like that. That's a lot of fun. I really hope that they find a way to mine that for more fun. Absolutely. We, we are theorizing uh head cannon is that we're hoping the next one we see him and will be discovery. It would be fun to see him in Discovery. And then, you know, and speaking of, you know, Discovery season, we're at season five. You know, there are some surprises that I thought were going to be revealed in season four of Discovery. And they pulled back on it. And then they wait till season five to spring on everybody. I'm like, well, I can't wait for this because I was waiting for it the last time. And I've had to wait a whole extra season for them to to drop a couple of surprises on us. So it's it's fun watching it all come together. But yeah, the whole the whole idea of Wesley being a traveler and then now they've decided that the travelers are involved with the people who gave us Gary Seven. I really like and that. And I'm a huge Gary Seven fan. I'm just like, okay, I can I can see that I at first I caught me off guard when I read about it. And then I thought, you know what, I can I can make this work if they let me. If they let me do a book, I will totally find a way to make this work. I will retcon it so that my other books about Gary Seven can work with what we now know about Wesley Crusher, I will find a way. Um, Because I just think the idea is so super cool. See, I am a fan. You can tell. I get into it and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this now. I'm a nerd, I admit it. My my, my questions throughout this whole thing has just been subtle tests and don't worry, you're absolutely passing with flying colors here. Yeah, (laughs) You know, I I have loved Star Trek. I, I I cannot remember a time when I wasn't conscious of Star Trek my earliest memories included. Um, I never thought I'd be involved in it in any way, even the the tangential way that I am involved with it now. I never thought of that. I never gave that any kind of serious thought that that could be a thing. Uh, but to be here now to watch how they make the sausage and all the other stuff, it's just been like, I did not see this coming. It's been quite a ride and quite a treat. This actually, so this is a perfect segue into what is my final question for you, um, which is a nice, simple question, you know, easy to answer. What does Star Trek mean to you? See, to me, Star Trek is a journey. Um, it's it's the, the basic philosophy for me in Star Trek is that we are better than we were and we can be better than we are and how we get there that's where all the good stories are. That's to me a Star Trek. It's uh, constantly pushing to be better than what we are at that point in time. Um, I love the way that Star Trek separates itself from a lot of science fiction because it's the one that offers us a hopeful. We can do that if we work right, if we do all the right things and we, you know, give it, you know, care for each other and look out for each other and have each other's backs. We can get to that future. It's there waiting for us if we work for it. Um, that's my that's my take on Star Trek. It's it's the journey and trying to make yourself better than you are. 
I love it. And not just um, for yourself, but for everybody around you. I think, and that's actually something that that particular last idea has has been echoed by a few other people who've come on this pod. That this sense of you know this community, family, togetherness. Like you basically, leave no man behind. Basically, you leave nobody behind, and you know, family is what you make. That you make your family. I mean, you're obviously born into a family, but your real family are the people that you choose to surround yourself with or who choose to include you in their lives. And it's because it's not always about you. Right. So that's me. I mean, I was at a point in my life where I thought I'd made all the friends, the really close friends that I was going to make. Like I've got my got my close circle of friends that, you know, the dozen or so people that I would trust with my life or with my kids lives. And then I got all these uh, casual acquaintances. And of course, social media kind of blurs that line because there are people that I have never met in person, known them for 30 years because of the Internet, you know, or whatever preceded the Internet, like America Online or, you know, one of these services. Never met them, but I consider them to be as close a friend as anybody that I've ever met in person or hung out with. Um, but, you know, we we situation changed where my, we moved to a different neighborhood my, to put my kids in different schools. And, you know, those kids started hanging out. My kids started hanging out with other friends. So we hang out with their parents. And the next thing I know, I got this huge social circle that's way bigger than I ever had in my entire life. You know, I'm like, I don't need that many friends. Turns out, <laughs> kind of do. You know, it's like I really do like all these friends that I've made over the years. And I ne- But I was at a point where I was like, you know, I've got my people from the military. I got my friends from the military and, you know, those those people and people I worked with and Star Trek people, I, I got enough friends. Nah, turns out I can have a whole bunch more. There's plenty of room for more friends. I love it. So what I'll do is I'm going to include an application form to be your friend in the description of this episode. You know, I should put a template on my website that you'll let, uh, I can just be, be Dayton's friend. You know, it's pretty easy to be my friend. I mean, at least, or at least friendly enough that we can talk. So I like to think I'm approachable. Uh, well, I've certainly have found that to be the case. Um, nice and easy to chat to you. So thank you very much. No, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Honestly, no, honestly, I don't absolute pleasure. Um, and before we go, as I say, I just want to thank you again. And just to let everyone know, then, where can people find you online to fill in this application form? <laughs> so my uh, web page is DaytonWard.com. Uh, and that is largely a blog. It's mostly, a, it's mostly, I don't, I don't have a static website anymore. Uh, I just use that as the, 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 the key to get to my blog. Uh, but that's also where you'll find my links to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And I just started a Mastodon account the other day when Twitter looked like it was going to oh. melt apart. Yeah. Um, so all that's out there, uh, links to where I write for star Trek.com and Amazon pages and all that kind of stuff. I don't have a wish list. I don't have an Amazon wish list. You don't have to buy me anything. Uh, just, you know, buy my book or at least buy another writer's book or, you know, go to the library and check out their book from the library and read it. Uh, yeah. Daytonward.com. That's my one-stop shopping place. That is, that is brilliant. That will be all in the description of this episode. Um, so just once again, Dayton, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this week. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Pleasure. And to everyone who's listening along, thank you very much. We'll be back next week, as usual. In the meantime, look after yourselves and live long and prosper. Thanks.